you know, as a 10-year-old, I totally missed that, but uh, and it made sense. But for me now at 50, I'm just like, I feel like there's a missing scene here. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this podcast to bring you some incredible news. We are under attack. Never before has this recorder seen such devastation, such destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, I fear the time has come for Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules! So grab a can of fermented weed and listen up. It may just save your life. folks welcome back to assault of the two-headed space mules i'm your host douglas arthur and tonight today tomorrow whenever you're listening to this uh it's part two of our rollicking conversation about uh, steven spielberg's classic 1977 film close encounters of the third kind uh joining me is uh jim fitzsimmons uh brian curtis and michael noble collectively known as the Gooch Squad, or the Gang of Occasional Co-Hosts, uh, as they're also known, um, and uh, we were in the middle of discussing uh, the film, and uh, Brian, or not Brian, uh, Michael had taken a little break and had just come back, um, so I'm going to rewind the tape just a bit so you get to catch a little bit of the end of last week's show, and then we'll jump right into part two of Close Encounters at 40. Okay, let's get back to my questions. We, 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 oh, let's go back onto the rails. I have questions. You ready? Ready. Uh, okay. okay. No, go, Doug. Let's go. What were you going to say? Okay. Well, because I, I think I, I had originally started towards a point uh, about 25 minutes ago. <laughs> Uh, you did really make make your point it's your show i I was well because and maybe this is one of your questions i have a feeling it is um but it's it's one of i think the film's only we've talked about some of the minor flaws but i think there's one scene uh, that is actually kind of a major flaw for me well here it comes i feel it and it and, and it's really stuck. It really stuck out like a sore thumb to me, especially the second time I watched it this this week. Um, and it's it's in the middle of the movie. It's where it, it's it's when the, the second phase starts, and he's traveling into Wyoming, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's pulling into a train station, and Jillian is calling his name. Yeah. And I'm just like, and I'm like, wait a minute. You well, know, as a ten-year-old, I totally missed that, but uh, it, and it made sense. But for me now at fifty, I'm just like, I feel like there's a missing scene here because yeah. uh, How convenient was that that they just he just happens. And, I mean, and, all those thousands of people. But 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 why did he stop there? I yeah. mean, 
there didn't seem to be any reason for him to even stop there. That's true. Yeah, that was just bad. That was just bad editing. Bad editing. I think that was yeah. I think Michael said. So, I think that there might have been an establishing scene to set up that scene, and it just didn't make it in. So I, I mean, other. I mean, in in the grand scheme of things, it's not a killer, but it it's it's, it's one of confusing. the it, it's one of the things that bugged me about about the movie when I, when I saw it again and I'm just with, with the uh, older eyes and I'm, and, and I was like, God, that's just, I can't believe that, you know, with all of this great movie making that this, this was allowed to happen because, because there, it makes yeah. absolutely, it, it really feels like there was a missing scene uh, that there, there had to have been, there had to have been because it, it makes sense that that's how they reconnect. I, I get that. But for Spielberg just to throw that scene in just so they could reconnect makes no sense whatsoever. So you're absolutely correct. There had to have been stuff that, uh, um, that came before that, that superseded that, mm-hmm. that worked into the story so that it made sense that he got there and made sense that they met. And it, for whatever reason, it just didn't work. But some, for, and for another strange reason, Spielberg decided he was going to leave it in so they could reconnect. How else were they going to reconnect? Right. And then, I don't know. And remember, when she is, you, know, you hear her shouting to him, and it, then you see that she's being pulled into one of the, the, one of the boxcars, and there's a, there's, a, there's a military dude that's, that's pulling her in. Now, she gets away from him somehow, and that's so she's running over to Roy, and the military guy is on her heels yelling at her about getting in. And I thought, why would he care? There are hundreds of people trying to get on to see who's okay, right. she got away. I'm not, exactly. why is right. he following her if maybe right. there was some scene prior to that where he was part of it? Right. Maybe. You know, it, but it just seems, that's, I always thought that was weird. That, that he, why is he following her? <laughs> why, why is he, he giving her a okay, That right. one got away. I'll just pull this one on. Yeah, right. yeah. I, I, th- I thought the same thing. Um, and, and um, you know, uh, it, it just, it just, uh, it didn't make a lot of sense, but but I was thinking back about it as like um, Spielberg actually wrote the screenplay to this movie as well. He, I mean, he's the sole credited screen screenwriter on this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but there was a novelization of the movie that came out and yeah. Spielberg wrote the novel. Also, really? it was not oh, wow. Dean, it wasn't Alan Dean Foster or so some other hack that Alan Dean Foster is not a hack. He wrote he wrote a lot of adaptations. Let's just leave <laughs> did, did it at that. Did he do Splinter of the Mind's Eye? I don't know. I've never read him. He, so. he, he did he did Splinter of the Mind's Eye as well. Yes, but anyway, <laughs> what I'm saying is they could Spielberg, have told him about Luke and Leia. That's much innuendo. <laughs> he he all he also wrote the novelization, and I know I had the book, and I know I read the book. Mm. I don't know how many times because I, I love the movie, and it's possible that there's stuff in the book that didn't make it into the final cut, and I'm I'm suspecting that there's got to be something that explains why he stopped at the train station, and mm. you know. Well, see, I knew there was a novelization. I didn't know that he did it, and now I have to find the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I do too. I kind of wish I still had the book. I don't know what happened to it, but you know, in 40- you kept the damn clip from the cans from the films, but you can't keep the book. Way to go, Douglas. <laughs> hey, I wasn't a projectionist forty years ago. I was a projectionist twenty years ago. <laughs> so. 
well, what other questions are there? Yeah, okay. Here's my here's my big question. I'm gonna have to go and put little one to bed. So, all right, Brian. Thanks for joining us. But, but thanks for inviting me. I've learned so much, and now actually, I have the, the next movie. I'm going to try to watch that with with <laughs> fresh adult go. eyes. And I can hardly wait till this. Well, I can hardly wait till Doug publishes this, so I can find out what I missed and how Brian took it in a completely off the rails direction. <laughs> I did. I think it's 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 shocking. Yeah. No, we 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 talked about some interesting things actually. Um, yeah, we did. But but, did. but 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 we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> All right. So, here. Go, Thanks, guys. All right, All right. Bye, Brian. All right. Have All, right. Good one. All right. Go ahead and 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 talk. <laughs> okay. Here's my here's my here's my big question. This is the one I thought you were going to talk about. Yeah, that that was one of the ones that I had because that that seemed bug me with uh, um with Jillian and Roy. But but here's the big one. Okay. At the end, when 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 the mothership lands, we got th- okay. We got three sets of aliens going on here. Not sets, but we got three different aliens going on. We got the alien that's extremely thin and emaciated, and he's probably uh, what I like to call the Ethiopian alien that's coming down the ramp. Mm-hmm. I call him the spider guy. I like the spider yeah, exactly. Alien. Yeah. yeah. There's him. There are you know all the little guys which were played by kids, mm-hmm. and then you have Puck. Which is known as Puck, the one that actually, you know, quote unquote, talks to uh, Lacombe. Does the hand so? Yeah, and looks a lot like Barry, which I think looks a lot like Barry. So you know, something going on there. You know, the early milkman. I do think Spielberg did it on purpose. He wanted, he wanted the 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 character to look childlike, and he he was modeled it on Barry because you look at the two of them, they look almost identical. Yeah, and I don't have a problem with that. My my question is, we have three different aliens going on there, right? Seems that way. So, if that's the case, I just don't understand that first alien. What was going on with that? Makes an appearance, and that's it. I don't know. Douglas? <laughs> Jim's no freaking help, Douglas. Hey, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't tell you other than... Um, I, thought, I thought originally maybe that's Puck that they're showing that's coming down, but then if that's Puck then why don't we see him at all in between until the last part? Maybe that's maybe he's the one adult alien and all the rest of them are juveniles and, and, and that Puck is intermediate there. Great. So that's a theory, and I can go with that theory. But what yeah, happened to him? Here. Yeah, where'd he go? Exactly. Hey, exactly. Right. See ya. <laughs> yeah. What's up with that? I don't know. That was that, – I can't – I don't know. I, uh, th- well, you know, I say I thought that was a, that was a good question. I'm looking for answers. You know, help me out here. Well, it is I need to know question. what is the answer. I don't know. Why don't I you just, look in your mashed potatoes? Just uh, <laughs> watch. Ask Lacombe. Okay, here you want another, want another question. Here you go. All right. There is there's only one and one quarter rational people in this movie. If you think about it. Now we'll go back to what I was talking about. A bit, this being a terrifying film as an adult. If you're watching this thing with with Mary leaving his kids and uh, and uh, and Jillian losing her son and and you know the kidnapping and who knows maybe this these psychotic ep- uh, episodes that Roy Neary was experiencing were uh, some type of uh, psycho telekinetic uh, mind reading abilities from the aliens or something who knows you know what I mean Might pretty pretty terrifying but here's the deal there's one and a quarter 
rational people in this movie. One of them is David Laughlin, played by Bob Balaban, who is the, the interpreter for, for Lacombe, right. who in the Sonora Desert is standing in the middle of the desert in the wind saying, why are these things here? Mm-hmm. He's asking the question. You can see that there is, is, is anguish on his face, and he's trying to get an answer from anybody from, from the Mexicans, from the Federales, from, from Lacombe, from, from, from the gods, from the wind, anything. Why are these things here? Makes yet, sense to me. And yet, uh, when Lacombe asks him how long he's been with the project, he said that he'd been with the Americans from the beginning. So Exactly. That didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, why is he asking this question? He should know what they're doing. He should. So there's another little, little quirky flaw. But, but then, but then again, he was a map maker, so right, maybe, he did, right. maybe he didn't know. Maybe and, he didn't. Well, and right. the, he's the narrative tool to help bring the audience into the government side of things. He, that's that's you know he's like the he's almost like the Watson for Sherlock Holmes, except he right. never gets anything explained. To and, him. And, and, and coming and coming full circle with what Douglas said and what Jim just said, that makes that's rational to me. That makes sense. Okay, but. Everyone else, if you think about it, no one else is rational in this film. Neri isn't rational, obviously. I don't know what's going on with, with, with Jillian because she seems way too calm for a kid being kidnapped. Uh, you can't think that any of the scientists are rational because, you know, scientists are psycho to begin with. And all, all they want to do is they want to document and they want to find out what's what. They don't know if they're in danger. They... they they don't even think they're in danger. They're just in awe of all this stuff, all right? Uh, and nobody's rational. There's one rational person, and that person is one of the workers on, on, the, landing, on the landing pad at the end that goes rushing by Mary, almost bumps in and, 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 and takes off and goes to the porta-potties because the guy's scared shitless. He's the only other rational person in there because that's why I would be. I'm scared. I don't know if these things are going to do a laser blast type of thing where they're going to start shooting at you. If the radiation from the ship is going to, you know, melt my eyeballs out. If if we're all going to die, who knows? Am I wrong? No, no, you're right. There you go. You know, there was one thing that occurred to us where we were watching it, and we talked about it later. Because you know, when I saw the movie originally, I'd never been to Devil's Tower Monument. I'd never been there, but I've been there since. And so, and we were just oh, cool. there, we were just there last summer, and uh, so we're watching this. And after the movie, it, you know, I was talking to my wife, and I said, I said, you know, when, when I was thinking about this, when they were running and climbing over all the rocks, and they're trying to get to uh, get around the thing, and you know, all that. They, and he, Roy is talking about, well, you have to go this way because if you go that way, there's a 300 foot foot drop, and you know, that's why I sculpted it, and it's better, all that stuff. And I said to Amy, I says, you know, I was thinking, why don't you guys just take the walking path that's around the thing? <laughs> There's a walking path all the way around it. Just, just go to the, you know, there's a, there's a tourist center right there. You walk up the steps and you get to the walking path and you just, just walk around it. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it was that there in 1977. Oh, sure was. This is this was the okay. first monument that was, uh, you know, erected, so to speak. In, uh, but it, but I don't think it was known too much because I remember reading something about Spielberg picking this thing out specifically because not too many people knew about it. Yeah, maybe it was, it was one of, of those one of those kind of the uh, not thought of too often as a monument. But right. Let me tell you though, when you do go to see it. 
When and I want to. At that time, she says, I don't believe it's real. It, it is weird. And you look at this thing. It's funky. A, yeah. It, it, what is, how, how is this here? Yeah. It's a weird it, looking That's thing. the only thing that's out there, right? Yeah, it's there. I touched it. <laughs> huh. No. Funky. It, interesting. Well, I, I think uh, it's, it's amazing we've gotten this far and have not mentioned uh, Francois Truffaut. Uh, I mean, we've we've talked about his character, but, you know, we we started, I think, while you were away, uh, Michael, we started talking about, um, you know, some of the other directors uh, of, you know, uh, independent directors, um, you know, of the 70s and and so on. And, um, you know... We, 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 I was about to bring up Francois Truffaut being in the movie, and 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 it, it, that got away from us a little bit. But um, it's it, he, I think, uh, puts on a, a pretty good performance. Um, mm-hmm. And that was actually, I, I was actually, that was another reason I was so grateful for Close Encounters because that was my first, that was my introduction to Francois Truffaut. Mm-hmm. And I came here actually. And and, and and I've since you know seen several of his movies. Um, you know, we talked about him quite a bit in my film history classes when I took film history classes. Uh, you know, several years later when I was in college, and um, <clears throat> you know, it, it you know he's he's really quite a quite a good director. Um, yeah. You know, and and, and uh, does a lot of very personal films. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see him in this role where he's, you know, kind of as an actor mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of taken away from behind the camera because he he's I, I don't think he acted in too many of his films. I think you know, he's more more known as a writer director. Um, yeah. And, and he actually started off in film criticism. He was a very famous film critic. Um and he was the one that actually came up with the auteur theory, which kind of states that the director is the author of the film uh, because they're kind of in control of all the elements. They have to kind of wrangle all the elements right. together. Um, and, and, you know, uh, his, you know, he kind of said that, uh, you know, Hitchcock is one of the first true auteurs because every one of his movies kind of has his stamp on it. Right. Um, um, and so it's interesting to, kind of get that um, you have this person in Francois Truffaut who kind of created this um, term terminology and he's in a film by a young director who basically he wrote the movie he's he's directing the movie he's kind of he was uh you know in on doing the special effects um you know he gets if you read the credits he had like a little special effect credit um at the end where uh you know and 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 i think in the little documentary that they show before the film they have him in his little animation studio um uh, he has a little animation board that he's working on something so you know it's kind of it's kind of interesting to me to see you know Francois Truffaut in this movie that is ostensibly uh, a, a, a giant living document of proof of his theory of, of mm-hmm. the auteur theory um, because it, you know of all the Spielberg movies this one is probably I think 
the one that resonates the most. It's certainly the, the most personal, and I think it's the one that he's most involved in. I mean, Jaws was based on a novel, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so that had, you know, uh, and he was kind of a, a hired gun on that. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, you go, at, you know, and Raiders of the Lost Ark was actually created by George Lucas, um, you know, and that was a big collaboration with them. So, you know, you look at you look at some of, you know, you know, his other some of his other films. This is the one movie that he personally wrote the screenplay and did and did so much. And, and it really, fe- it, 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 you know, I've watched a lot of Spielberg movies. This one feels different from all the others because it is so personal. There is all of that personal scene of Roy Neary uh, disintegrating into madness and obsession and his family uh, disintegrating and falling apart. And, you know, it, it, it just, all of that personal stuff added in to this kind of movie of discovery and this journey, which never really ends the movie, mm-hmm. the, the journey never, yeah, there's no conclusion. There's no conclusion there, to it. There, there's no, right. there's no real conclusion to it. It's kind of left to our imaginations at the end. And it, it's, right. and it's kind of fascinating to me because, uh, you know, it's really early. It, it, it re- is really quite early in his career, in Spielberg's career. I mean, I think he was only like 26 or 27 when he made this movie. Mm-hmm. He's very young, um, you know, uh, and that was at a time, I mean, it happens more often now, but that was at a time when uh, Hollywood did not hand over the directorial reins to, you know, someone that young, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, right. you had to, you had to work your way up. You had to be a, you know, assistant, you had to do, sure. uh, you know, uh, uh, most of the directors were much older and, and you know, uh, 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 Orson Welles. Older and seasoned. He had, yeah. he had laid a lot of groundwork in his TV work though. Yeah, yes, People he were did. seeing his TV work and they said, this guy probably, you know, he's got some track. Yeah, he had a track record, and I think that's one of the reasons the studio did did did, did uh, have some confidence uh, behind him in doing things. So. Well, but I, still, I, at 26... He managed yeah. to wrangle Jaws, which Jaws was nothing from one problem to the next problem to the next problem. Yeah, yeah, uh, and exactly. He managed to put out a, a classic film that, you know, that yeah. would not have been nearly as good had the shark worked. Well, it you know it's funny because I, I I almost feel like he learned some lessons there that he used in this movie because you don't see anything really you, you don't see any uh, of the aliens. I, I mean, mean well, let's and, talk about some of the great scenes in there. I mean, the one the the, the probably the most iconic of you know, man if, if I may use that word. Well, 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 Jim, real quick before before you do that, let me back up and I, I want to talk to if if I could just interject and say a couple of things about Francois Truffaut that Douglas was talking about, um, if you don't mind. Um, I've, I've read a lot of stuff about Close Encounters and, and seen a lot of articles and whatnot, and I just want to expand a little bit on, on some of the things that you were saying, Douglas. Uh, Spielberg did was pretty thrilled that he got. Truffaut to do this film, and Truffaut said, "I remember reading that he wasn't an actor, and he told Spielberg that I, you know, I've, <laughs> I've done some little stuff in my films, but you know, you got a pretty big part you want me to do in here, and I don't speak English that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if 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 barely at all, I, I'm not an actor, and the only thing that I can give you is who I am." 
So I'm not going to be able to act. And Spielberg said, yep, that's exactly what I want. And you know what? It freaking worked in this movie. I really like the character of Lacombe because he brought a certain certain intrigue to it and, and just... You know, it's like the, uh, and as I said earlier, the whole, the, the, all the government stuff seemed like we were still not in on everything. There was still stuff that they were keeping secret. There was stuff that right. they knew right. about that that never came across in the film. And maybe that's why uh, uh, Balaban had that was still always seemed fairly mystified. You know, when he got really teamed up with with Lacombe uh, later, you know, it, he had a there was more of a grounding for him. At that point, but he his introduction was you know what is going on here. But we still, as viewers, the government involved stuff is like what is going on here? I mean, how long have they known about this, and how do, how do they know what they're doing? And so then they bring in this French guy, and that scene there where he shows them the hand signals and they have the music and they are all acting like this is some major breakthrough. And I thought. Uh, okay. <laughs> How is yeah, that? you just kind of got to kind of go with it. That's all. Yeah, and it's just I I, I realized that it was they, they were thinking. Well, maybe we can use this to start to learn how to communicate with each other. But I would I would have thought that the aliens would have figured that out. But uh, um, but yeah, so it was it, it, you had to suspend you had to suspend belief a little bit in order to yeah. get on board with that. But you know. But his being his being French, you know, his accent, his English isn't so good. The way that uh, Truffaut played him had that intrigue to him. He was on the side of the people that were showing up. He was not on the side of the government. Um, you know, he right. wanted those people there. And he was just working with the government, but not on their side. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I thought that he was, and 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 Truffaut felt he felt real. It just it, it was it was. He uh, did. It didn't feel uh, acted. It didn't feel like a guy that doesn't know how to act. Uh, it it flowed. felt real. It flowed. The thing that really got me where, where I was really on board with that, because I was trying to figure out if, if, if he was working or not in the film. I remember uh, about the second or third time I, I saw it, the thing that really got me is when he was he was pleading his case with a Wild Bill, the, that colonel or, or lieutenant colonel or whatever, in the office there when, when Neary was there and he was showing all the drawings and this and the other saying, you know, why are these people here? They were called for some reason. He was, you know, going back and forth between French and English and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't give a shit if he's not an actor or not. That was some damn good acting. And if that was just him being him, man, did that work. Because that, that's, that's what got me on board, board with him in that completely. I, I love that. I love those scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, it was, it was kind of interesting. We haven't mentioned. And speaking of which, just real quick, um, in that scene, uh, I think we also get our first glimpse of uh, a a future celebrity. Um, The there's a there's a fourth person in the room aside from Truffaut, Alaban, and 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 the Colonel. But it's Lance. One of my favorite actors. One of my favorite actors. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. I think he has one line in the whole movie, uh, which comes a little so bit too. later. Yeah, he says, what, Mr. Lacombe? <laughs> yes, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> he might have had another line, maybe. But, yeah, you, you, I think you see, you see him, you get glimpses of him previous to that. And, and I remember watching it get on video, and I said, is that Lance Henriksen? Yeah. <laughs> and then at some point, like, oh, yeah, it's clear that is who that is. Yeah. Right. He's, he's he's in quite a few scenes, but he only has, I think, like one or two lines. That's it. Yep. So, yep. Uh, well, yeah. so we've managed not to mention the the truck turning scene. Well, I I 
mentioned it in passing, which is one of the great moments in all of movie history, uh, where Roy, his truck stops working, and oh, right. and he's you know he's he's lost, and he had the cars pull up behind him, and then one one goes up and over. Um, so we mentioned it, but just the 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 way they they filmed it, making the truck turn while the camera stayed stationary, so it, or, or you know made it look as though it just it just went zero g inside his right. inside his cab, right. and that you know the bright light and he gets the sunburn. But what I loved about that when I was a, when I was a kid and I still love it today was that when it ended, you know the the lights go off. Uh, that the big bright lights on go off. He still has no power in his vehicle, and he's he's looking out and he sees the thing kind of passing above, and he looks to the intersection up ahead of him, and the lights flash on again, looking around for something. I love that moment. It's like they're just checking things out, and it's oh, is there something here? No, nope, there's nothing there. And it's, it's I it, for I don't know why, but I just love that 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 Spielberg thought. Uh, he wanted to add that, that you know that they're they're just curious and they're looking at everything, and they just stopped at another intersection and said, "Well, is there anything interesting here?" Um, I love that moment because it was a nice little coda for the the whole truck turning over and all that stuff. Yeah, right. I agree. Right, I agree. And and and, uh, and it and it ends very, very quietly. Uh, um, mm-hmm. all, all you hear is you know. Um, you, you know, you kind of hear some of the, you know, the insects and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, after all of that chaos and, 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 and fury, all of a sudden it's just quiet and silent. Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, and, and how ominous you know, is that when the ship is passing over and it's, there's barely a sound. It just, yeah. yeah just a little, I think there's a little bit of a hum in the background yeah. or something. And yep. that's it. And, and, then, and then the flashlight turns out and he goes nuts. <laughs> yeah, and then you get that nice, nice little comic touch there where, where, mm-hmm. where the, light, the lights come back on. It kind of scares him yeah. a little bit. And yeah, I, remember la- I remember laughing at that part when I was, when I was a kid. You know, yeah. like, I laughed at it when I saw it again, both those scenes, when the, lights came, when the flashlight came on in his lap and when the truck started up again. You know, speaking, of up, laughing at it, speaking of laughing at it, there was a couple of moments there where I remember the audience laughed you know, when it was first out. You know, it's like... They show him a, uh, a picture of Devil's Tower. He toss, when he's being interviewed by Lacombe and uh, the other fellow, and he tosses his like, "Yeah, I got one like that in my living room." And yeah. I remember that getting a laugh line. And but when watching yeah. it this time, the audience is kind of they must know they must have known the film so well that they didn't you know because they laughed at a couple of things that had been laughed at before. But at that, I thought, "Well, come on, that's funny." Yeah, I got. I know because yeah. Dreyfus does it perfectly. Just he just throws us. Yeah, I got one of those in my living room. Yeah, yeah. And I know, and I noticed that too. And you know what? I chalked that up to Jim. I chalked that up to uh, the audience not paying attention more than them realizing they want. I don't think they were. I don't think they were actually paying attention when that happened. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing, just speaking of the truck scene, there wasn't a chuckle when the the ship lifted up and went over. I remember that being a big laugh when we yeah. saw it in, in, in 77. Cool. I remember that being huge because, cool. you know, because I think, and that might be due to the fact that they lopped out one of the cars. It, it, because it, when it happens, the one car, the comic timing might have been pulled off a little bit. With two cars, by the third one, you just, you're thinking it's mundane. Right, you know, and it's, it's actually that second car set it up, yeah. So I have a feeling that... But the audience, I would expect, you know, I kind of, I chuckled, but nobody else did. It's like I did, I did really? too. I don't remember if anybody chuckled at that, but yeah, I think those two things set it up, and that's what made the third time with the ship lifting 
<laughs> vertically uh, made the scene. Yeah, but it, I, it, I think, I think, yeah, I think yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure one of those things got cut out. Oh, yeah, it, I, I'm pretty it, sure. It definitely did. It definitely yeah. did. I mean, it's it's like um, Han Solo shooting first. I mean, it's oh. ingrained. I know. I, I know what I saw, and yeah. I and, and there was well, definitely. Well, never even got after shot. <laughs> no, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But that's that's a whole other discussion for another right. time, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but but you're right. There's a lot of little little comic moments. I mean, um, one little tossed aside line that uh, you know came earlier in the film where the the kid was like, "Oh, Dad said he'd let us watch the Ten Commandments," and then you know Terry Gars you know says, "How would you let him?" That movie's like four hours long, and then he just mumbles this little throwaway line under his breath. Uh, where he's like, well, I told him he could only watch the first five, um, <laughs> and, and, you know. But, but you know, yeah, but I don't think I even noticed that until you mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, you know, I forgot. I forgot about that until you mentioned it. That's true. But, but, That's but, a funny shit, man. Yeah, you know. So you know, I remember laughing at that in 1977, and then it's funny. But you know, when when I watched it again, I mean, when I saw it on Saturday. Believe it or not, Saturday Saturday night on a holiday weekend, and you know there was maybe like twenty people in the in the theater watching mm. the movie. It was it was not packed at all, and and uh, you know nobody nobody was reacting really. Um, the one laugh I remember that was got when when Roy sees the thing, he comes home all excited. He wants to bring him out. Like, Come out, let's go see. Take a look. He opens the the bedroom door to his daughter's bedroom, and she's she's sleeping on her face with her butt in the air. That was the only thing that people still laughed at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yep, yep. And and you know, I I think there are just lots of little comic moments like that that uh, mm-hmm. you know just didn't uh, you know didn't maybe maybe because so much time has passed and people uh, you know uh, like you said maybe maybe people just weren't paying as much of attention. I kind of felt like that. You know, he could. I told him he could only watch the first five. I felt. I, I almost felt like that line got uh, maybe buried in the mix a little bit because um, mm-hmm. it was it was kind of imperceptible. And I'm like, I remember being able to understand him say that, like in the, uh, originally, and then this time it seemed like he was more mumbling it. I noticed that too when we walked in. Now we got there. Uh, we thought the well, our tickets on the Fandango app said that the movie was going to be starting at 3.45. When we got there, it was starting at 3.15, or at least the showing was starting. And we didn't, and we didn't realize that. We talked to somebody there and said, well, what's going on here? And he said, oh, wait a minute. It's only this. So when we, we missed the little 10, 15-minute film about the movie before that. We missed the trailers. We missed that. But when we walked in, it was just as they were getting into that first scene in Mexico. It was just right. after that, that dark screen, and then it goes bright, you know, in the in the sandstorm, and you know, so it was just at that point. So that oh, you you, you you literally missed nothing. I mean, that yeah, was that's, it, that and I and I and I knew game. that too because the, the the guy the usher that was bringing us in said he said well, it's the first scene. You really haven't missed anything, and, and we knew it because we all had seen the movie before. So we knew that we oh, were good. So we decided, well, let's just watch it, and then we got three passes because of the snafu. So um, yeah. And and when we sat down and started watching it, um, uh, I thought the mix was a little off because the the guys are calling out the the block numbers 
and uh, Balaban's character was, you know, was making statements he's making. You know, he's asking these questions, and the sound of the of the storm and the music was overpowering them. And I thought, I hope this mix isn't like this the whole movie. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I seem to recall. I seem to recall that being a little more easily understood. It right. was harder. To, it was harder to hear what they were saying. So, unfortunately, the movie settled down. But right there, I was thinking, man, if that's what it's going to be like, it's going to be hard. Especially, you know, when the music fills come. I find that now when I watch DVDs at home, it's just like the music fills are so loud. You know, I got to turn up for the hear the dialogue, and then yeah. and then the yeah. music fills come up. And I got to turn it down. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. You know, so it could just be me being a 52 year old curmudgeon. Yeah. Well, (laughs) (laughs) that'd be my first thought. It could be, could be very, very much. So I I think we've rambled quite a bit here. Um, We have. um, We're coming up on two uh, hours. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I wanted to just before we um, kind of, did you have any other questions, Michael? before we before before we <laughs> before we change subjects here. Let's see. Boobs, stick figure, bathroom. No, I'm pretty good. I'm good. Okay. Good. okay. <laughs> All right. Well, the, I think we we touched on it briefly, but I think one of the the since you sort of brought it up, Jim, I, the one last thing I kind of want to talk about is the use of uh, music. Um, while, while you were gone, Michael, we talked about the use of sound a little bit, and we kind of compared it to, um, you know, we had we had uh, mentioned, you know, George Romero's use of sound, and we and we talked a little bit about Sam Raimi's use of sound, in in um, you know, in conjunction with the visuals, and it was really, you know, this movie makes such a use of the music. Mm. Um, the music almost becomes a character. Um, yeah. in the in the film um and 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 it's and it's really interesting i i think the most interesting thing and and jim you missed this uh because it was in the the little mini documentary that they showed at the beginning but mm-hmm. spielberg was actually he had, they did a little interview with him uh about the score and he was actually afraid after seeing star wars that john williams was not going to be able to produce right a good soundtrack for him because he's like, how can you produce a soundtrack that good and come back with something that's, you know, equally good or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so he was really, yeah, he, was, he, was, he was afraid that, 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 that Williams didn't have anything left in him. Yeah. Well, and, let me and, tell and, you, and that he, score is so spot on for what that movie is. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. The use of human voice in there and that the sound like like a like a like a bee buzzing kind of sound and it just it's just it's just fantastic yeah and even you know the integration of the um you know the when you wish upon a star br- just mm-hmm. briefly at the end mm-hmm. um although you know we we still think that our uh, memory of the original uh <laughs> movie had more of it in there um but uh but you know he did so many great things and and uh, apparently um i was doing a little research on the five tones uh john williams had actually come up with i i forget now but it was literally like hundreds of combinations a lot yeah a and, lot and and that was and that that was the combination that was chosen uh by mm-hmm. 
by Spielberg and his team. Um, so he, you know, he put a lot of work into creating the score. And actually, you know, like I said, it, it, it was almost like a, a character in the, mm-hmm. in the film because of the, that those five tones and uh, really became part of the puzzle, part of the mystery, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and it, it was just a really excellent use of, um, you know, of music and sound uh, in a way that I don't think I've seen. Uh, it, it certainly, I hadn't seen anything like that in my lifetime. Up, you know, in 1977, I was only 10. So, sure. um, you know, but but I I honestly don't know that I've seen too much since then that's really used sound and score in quite the same way. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to mention them, and, and you haven't done it. So this is probably going to be new information to you, um, if you don't mind me interjecting here. Um, well, that's why we're here. <laughs> exactly. Um, you interject upon us. The you. first of all, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that 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 uh, that Spielberg was uh, um, wondering if uh, that he wondered if if Williams had anything left in him to be able to put something out, and it, and it worked out beautifully for that. But one of the reasons this thing worked out, and I know this for a fact, is that when Williams did the score for this film, he saw the original, uh, I think the original edit of the film, and that's what he produced um, uh, the music to. That's how he wrote the score. Spielberg edited the film around the music. It wasn't the other way around, because traditionally you edit the music around the film. Mm-hmm. He actually did it. He actually edited the film around the music itself, and that's why it appears, at least to me, that everything fits like picture perfect, like a puzzle. It just mm-hmm. it just completely works. And you're right, Douglas. The music in this thing it takes on a life of its own. It's its own character. And off the top of my head, there's only three films. The, there's there are just three films that I can think of off the top of my head that, that do that for me. One, one of my favorite films that I really got into classical music for is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, I can yeah, name yeah. every single scene sure. just listening to the soundtrack of that. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is the second one. I don't care what it is in the original Star Wars A New Hope. I can hear a little snippet of music. I can tell you exactly what the scene is. Yep. It, it, it works perfectly. And maybe that's because I've seen the damn thing so much. Okay. Same thing. I listened to it while I was, while I was doing some work this afternoon. I made uh, certain that I listened to the soundtrack for Close Encounters again, and I could hit just about every single scene. I knew exactly what was what. There's, a nice, there's a, some nice military dirges in there. There's the uh, snippets in about four or five different places of uh, uh, When You Wish Upon a Star. 
Um, there's uh, there's even some uh, Star Wars kinds of tones in there. Uh, a lot of upbeat stuff, a lot of moody music, uh, long oboes and the whole shot that, that set everything up. And it's it, it gives me chills when I listen to the soundtrack. Love this soundtrack. Love this soundtrack. Love it. I, and I'll I'll give you one more movie that I just thought of, um, and I don't know if you guys saw this or not. It, it's a very recent film, um, just came out this summer, but uh, I, I kind of take it back that I haven't heard anything like it since. But uh, the movie Baby Driver, um, oh, which oh my God, go see it! It is mm. it it is an amazingly made film, um, and 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 talk about integrating music and visuals um, and oh. cutting and I mean there it, it it's it's like a nonstop soundtrack, and he cuts the film to the music almost perfectly i mean the there's one scene where they're having a gunfight and the gunshots are timed with the drum beats mm. of of the song that's playing during that it it, it but it's more than just that i mean it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's an it's a really well-made film it's Ed, edgar wright uh directed it he's the guy that did uh hot fuzz and mm. Shaun of the dead and uh, you know, uh, what was the other, the other one, um, at the world's end, I think was the other one. I didn't like that one quite as much, but, um, you know, but he's, he's a, a, a pretty, pretty good director. And I think this is by far his best film. Um, really? it, wow, and it's, it's really well worth, it's, it, it's well worth seeking mm-hmm. out. Um, it's, it's a really well-made movie. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's got a lot more heart than, than you would expect it to be. It's kind of a film noir and, uh, you know, uh, uh, movie. And, and, and if you love music, it is music is, you know, uh, a character unto mm-hmm. itself in this film as well. Um, but uh, it, 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 it reminds me a lot of the way, you know, Spielberg used it in close encounters for sure. Um, you know, and, and he used music to some extent too in jaws, uh, you know, to kind of, you know, John Williams, uh, score, uh, you know, kind of signaled the shark, um, mm-hmm. that you couldn't see, you know, the mm-hmm. unseen shark, um, right. you know, so it's very similar, uh, he, you know, as young as Spielberg was, he was starting to, you know, uh, learn and, and, and use the things that worked, um, mm-hmm. and, and use them in, in new and unique ways. He was definitely, um, like the master of the reveal in this movie. Um, right. there, the, I mean, there's so many scenes of him setting up the reveal of something. He doesn't just show you something. He shows people reacting mm-hmm. and then slowly gives you the information of what they're reacting to. Um, you know, not only that, but it's, it's not the re- it, not only that, but it's, it's, it, it, it's not only the reveal that's, that's a Spielbergism, but it is the aftermath of a particular scene as well. When he, slows it down or shows you the calm after the storm or shows you the uh, the ship uh, going ahead of uh, Neary's truck that's just sitting there idle as it's, you know, scanning down, putting the spotlights on the right. road, just kind of right. around. Right. And you can hear the, the little ominous music just fading away in there, too. That's, that, those are Spielbergisms, too. Not only, the, not only that uh, uh, setup for the reveal, but the aftermath of it, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think we're all in agreement that this is uh, 
one of the great films of all time, uh, at least my lifetime for sure. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it is uh, something, you know, I felt giddy uh, watching it again on the big screen. Uh, it, it, had been, it had probably been about 15 years or so since I'd seen it at all. Uh, you know, uh, but this was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen in quite a while. And, you know, and, and to see it all kind of, you know, remastered and, and gussied up and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it just, it was, I felt, I felt the same kind of giddiness and sense of wonder that I felt, you know, when I first saw it. And, and I think that's kind of an earmark of a, of a, of a great film. Uh, Cause a lot of times you revisit things when you're, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just doesn't, you're like, Oh, why did I like yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're disappointed. You almost yeah. hope. You almost hope that you wish that you would, you know, I wish I wouldn't have seen that and just left it. Right. Left, left it there memory. So that my left memory could be fun. I had that with The Legend of Boggy Creek. Oh, jeez. <laughs> when I saw that when it came out, and I was terrified by it, and I thought it was a brilliant film. Of course, I was, what, eight? And, yeah. and then I saw it again. <laughs> then I saw it again, not that, you know, well, actually, I saw it again not that long ago, but I watched it again in the 90s. And I forgot that there are songs in the movie written about characters in the movie. <laughs> I, put, oh I watched this thing. It was, it was. It still had a couple effective scenes, but I thought, wow. <laughs> huh. I Actually, I have that on DVD, and I have not seen it yet. To be honest it's, with you, uh, so. it's gonna it's gonna be playing at a local theater here at the end of the month. Uh, so I'm I might I was thinking about going to see it because I I've never actually seen it. Um, I've I've heard a lot about it. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, that was one of those things in the 70s. Uh, you know, there were Bigfoot movies and and you know creature creature movies, and that was Legend of Boggy Creek was one of those movies. I, well, I know, you know like I all, could, all I the kids say, in the neighborhood talked about. <laughs> I blogged I blogged about it. Uh, year ago or something like that. I could link, send you the link. It might have some spoilers in it, but, uh, but well, it's, based on, based on what you said, I'm not missing much. So yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's, like I said, I do point out in there, there are still, there are still a few effective scenes and the director probably due to the budget constraints uses the less is more because you never do really get to see the creature. You just well, maybe I'll watch it. Maybe I'll watch it and then go visit the blog. How about that? Right, well, you could do that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, there. Well, there we go. All right. Uh, do you gentlemen have any last words before we wrap this up? It was great. Our next, <laughs> our next revival film to be sent, coming out is, I guess, Star Trek Two: Wrath oh. of Khan. That's yeah, coming that, out. That's like next week or something, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know if I'm. Gonna... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I have uh, seen that on the big screen that, that was, not all that long ago. That, that, that was always my favorite of the Star mm-hmm. Trek movies. Yeah. Always. And, and but, uh, it, it was, it's, uh, as I said earlier, uh, these movies like this should be released every, every now and again because they deserve to be seen on a big screen. Uh, to remind yeah. you of Absolutely. how powerful they could be. It's just, yeah. you know, it's, you, they're great and entertaining on the TV, but it, there's just no replacing that big screen in front of you um, and being immersed in it. There's just no replacing it. 
I, I agree completely. And and you know what? I've gotten in quite a few heated discussions with, and I hate to use the term, but I'm going to use it anyway, millennials who say, you know, it's just easier if I get my, you know, just Netflix the thing and put it on my, you know, uh, 58-inch, 53-and-a-half-inch, yeah, I got That's my living room and my comfort and I got my popcorn and I don't have to deal with people. You know, it's part of the experience. Get off your fat ass and get on in front of a big screen, you big right. jerk. What's even, what's even worse is if they watch it on their iPod. No, <laughs> how anybody does that, I want to slap them. I want to slap them. Well, don't meet my wife and kid. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Douglas, I do have I do have some quick things I want to mention real quickly um, about sure. this movie. This movie, and I'll, and I'll keep it quick. Uh, something I found out that I did not know up until I saw this a few days ago. <laughs> I just looked at him and holy crap, that's Apollo Creed. Oh, I was going to mention Carl Weathers. Uh, yeah, Carl Weathers is, is one of one of the military guards or something He's like that. I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea. I still didn't notice that. Wow. He's in the credits, yeah. Which is funny because Rocky... No, I didn't see him in the credits. I saw him in the credits afterwards, but I actually saw him. And I go, damn, was that fleeting or what? And sure enough, it's Carl Weathers. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's him. Um, but yeah. I, I think I just I think it's funny because Rocky came out the year before in 1976. Yeah, in so like, right? That was a big role for him. And then he's kind I know. of... A bit, a bit part in um, in this movie, uh, so which makes me wonder if he did this thing first or he did Rocky first. Yeah, I don't know. Just cause, just because it came out different years doesn't necessarily mean anything. You know that. Sure. Well, that's that's for sure. I mean, I would think that with this, all the special effects uh, that went into Close Encounters, that that was probably it was probably filmed in '76. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, you know, we could look at um, the production schedule. I'm sure IMDb has it. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of production schedules, I saw something stating that uh, both Star Wars and Close Encounters came out the same weekend. And I challenged that because I saw both movies when they no. opened. I saw Star Wars and Grommans. Star, Star, Star Wars was May. Was May. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it was May 25th of 77. I know that for a fact. And I remember seeing around Christmas time Close Encounters. I saw that at the uh, Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. So I don't know where they say it was released in in mid-December. And something tells me about that because I remember it around Christmas time. But somebody uh, said that they came out the same week. And I said, no, 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 no. It it, it was, uh, I want to say November 4th. Mm-hmm. Or, or thereabouts was the release date for Close Encounters. So it was about um, six months after uh, uh, Star yeah. Wars. I mean, it was Christmassy time, kind of going from there. But, um, you know. This, yeah. This book was made for, at, at the time, $20 million, which was a lot at that time. But, uh, wow. Um, <laughs> I remember reading something about Spielberg wanting to show Truffaut the set for the uh, – I want to call it the landing pad. What the hell am I looking at? The very end scenes, the uh, the the uh, mothership uh, staging area. Well, I think because they built that in it. They actually the, the 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 guy in the uh, the the overhead speaker actually called it the arena. He I I, I remember. Yeah, something. Yeah, the arena. He, he I remember. Uh, so re- I remember Spielberg saying something about about uh, three quarters of a million dollars to spend on that set. 
in in a hangar that actually had atmosphere in it and the whole shot. He was thrilled to death to show it to uh, Truffaut. When Truffaut saw it, he goes, he wasn't, he just wasn't that impressed. And he goes, wow, you spent three quarters of a million on this? Crap, I can make a film for that that amount that you spent on this damn thing. So Spielberg was kind of pissed off at the fact that uh, he, he didn't impress him, but, you know. <laughs> Well, remember, and then the last, the last thing real quickly I want to mention is the mothership. Spielberg injected quite a few interesting little things into the mothership, including there's an image of R2-D2 in there. There's a mailbox. There's reference to Jaws. There's all kinds of fun little things inside that mothership. And you can specifically see R2-D2 upside down in the scene where the mothership is going over Jillian as she's hiding in the rocks as it goes into the arena. It's kind of cool. And then Neil deGrasse Tyson did point out that it's kind of ridiculous to have a runway <laughs> for the yeah. kind of craft. Uh-huh. <laughs> when they, they put on the lights for the runway. But yeah, we, we don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably not, but they didn't, you know, they didn't know. It makes it dramatic for the audience. But yeah. But also, you know, how... You know, they didn't know. And and earlier in the movie, the, the spaceships are following the road. So, you know, why not a runway? Just remember, the, the first encounter is love. Um, well... I don't know. I swear, you know, I spent so much time looking for that Bill Murray clip from Saturday Night Live, and and and, and you know, if if I can find it this week, I I'm going to put it in the show, and then you guys will. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be rooting for you, Douglas. I'll send you fifty cents. Our, our <laughs> You might just have to. <laughs> uh, I'll, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not that giving. I'll give you a virtual pat on the back. I love that. Uh, well, that's even, yeah, sure. You know, there's there's a that's, a that's a strong currency right there. So the, uh, the pat on the back from Michael. Um, so <laughs> anyway, it's getting to be uh, almost 11 o'clock here on the East Coast. So I'm going to wrap this up and uh, thank my co-host tonight, uh, Jim Fitzsimmons, Michael Noble, and uh, and Brian Curtis, who left us a little bit earlier in the show. Um, and uh, thank you for, for listening and uh, joining us here on the uh, 50th episode of uh, Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules, although by the time this actually comes out, it may actually be the 51st episode. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to split this one into two or three uh, yeah, there we go. Maybe this will be a three-parter. Um, but uh, in any event, uh, hope you've enjoyed our discussion of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Obviously, a, a great film uh, that that means a lot to uh, to to us. And uh, uh, we'll see you next time. Everything's ready here on the dark side of the moon. Play the five tones. Hey everyone, uh, before we go, I thought I'd 
let you know some of the links that I go to uh, for research on this uh, show, which you know, admittedly sometimes is not that much, but this time I actually went the extra mile. Um, during the uh, show, uh, you heard us discussing a particular scene at the train station and how it didn't make a lot of sense and um, uh, how it's possible that it was better explained in the novelization of the book, um, which I used to own uh, back <laughs> back in 1977-78. Uh, after the movie came out, I, I went out and bought the, the pocketbook. Um, but I have not had that book in many, many years. I don't know what happened to it, but uh, I decided to hit eBay and get myself a, a fresh copy, and I got the hard hardcover edition. And... Uh, it is explained a little bit better in the book, um, but it's still, you know, kind of a deus ex machina, uh, or however you want to pronounce that. It's Latin. Who cares? Uh, and uh, it's it's a, it's a little bit odd, but uh, anyway, I thought what I would do um, is actually read the uh, um, the passage of. You know about that about that scene. Um, I'm going to read a few pages from the from the book here, um, just to give you a flavor of uh, the scene and, and what's going on, um, so that you you get an idea of how 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 that play, how it plays out a little bit differently in the book than what was shown in the movie. <clears throat> so here we go, chapter 21 from the Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, novelization by Steven Spielberg himself. At Reliance, under a cloudless blue sky, the day was perfect for a picnic. Instead, it was roundup time, not of beef cattle, but of evacuees. For miles now, Neary had been aware he was the only car moving west into the Tetons. The lanes east were jammed with overcrowded vehicles. He hoped to gas, gas up in Reliance and keep moving, but for the first time he ran head-on into the military. A roadblock had been thrown across the highway right at the railroad station. National Guard soldiers, rifles slung across their backs, face, faces damp in the bright, hot sunlight, were herding people through what were normally feed and loading pens for cattle. Now boarding, blue cards only, a sergeant roared over the bullhorn. All evacuees with blue boarding cards move in quickly. Those with red cards form up behind the barricades. You'll be next. <clears throat> he paused to clear his throat. Hawk and spit without snapping off the bullhorn. The sounds echoed across the station area. Stay in line. You'll all get aboard. Just stay in line. Blue cards boarding now. He watched a corporal fully six and a half feet tall take note of the vega and start to lumber over, a stubborn set to his heavy jaw. But before he could reach Neary, a mixed herd started through the roadblock. Steers intermingling with spring sheep, making progress almost impossible. The rich aroma of manure lay over the scene. Get them woolly woolies out of here, out of my herd, a steer rancher shouted. You leave them sheep be, the owner of the flock warned him, or there'll be beef byproducts from here to Jackson Hole. An Air Force chopper hovered over the milling cattle and managed to spook them into a mini stampede that cleared the roadblock. Then the helicopter lifted sharply like a rising balloon and headed at once for the high Tetons. 
Neri was watching it disappear in the direction he longed to go to when the shadow of the Man Mountain Corporal fell on him. You got next to kin in the red zone, the soldier rumbled. Sue Ellen, my baby sister, Neri replied. Last name? Corporal pulled out a clipboard with a list of names. Hennersdorfer. Slowly moving the tip of a blunt finger like a snowplow down the sheets of names, the corporal made his way in and out of the H range of the alphabet. No Hennersdorfer. My God, then she's still in there, Neri exclaimed. We got everybody out by noon yesterday. Not baby Sue Ellen. No way, the implacable soldier told him. Everybody's out. We made a house to house. Ain't no baby Sue nobody in there. I gotta check it myself, Neary said. Mom and Pod never forgive me if baby Sue Ellen was killed because I was too lazy to go in and bring her out of that. Hey, Corporal cut in. You don't understand English, do you? Everybody's out. Nobody's going in, and I got orders to shoot looters on sight. Get the message, Hennersdorfer? Neary grinned foolishly. See you. He reversed the Vega and got out of there, but not before he heard the Corporal talking with a buddy. Another scavenger, huh? The buddies asked. Sweetheart, Corporal bragged, I could smell him in the hurricane. Neary's smile narrowed slightly as he left the area of the railroad station. He wasn't a scavenger or a looter. If anybody had asked him his real motive for being there, he'd have no respectable answer. Researcher, or curious person, or maybe invited guest? More like it, because whatever had given him the lunatic drive and energy to mow down every part of his normal life and build that insane nine-foot-high model of Devil's Tower, whatever had induced him to do what was sending him a message plain and clear, and whatever else the message said, it was an invitation to Devil's Tower. The only problem was how to get there, now that he was within 50 miles of the place. Walking, he'd get lost or shot. Besides, he wasn't all that sure he could successfully escape the GM nerve gas. If that was fact. But, at this late hour, Neary couldn't decide who to believe. He was on his way to something important and blindly pushing on. Folks, I don't wish to alarm you, a man was saying as Neary parked his car. The man was skinny, bald, and had a long upper lip and a wide mouth, a talker's mouth. He had already collected a small crowd, but with the near paddock situation in Reliance, Wyoming, a crowd was the easiest thing in the world to collect. Let me tell you what you already know, the man went on. GM nerve gas is colorless and odorless. You don't have no idea in the wild world when you're breathing it or touching it, but then, he went on, warming it to his speech, when your eyes begin to dilate and your nose starts a running, you're going to ask yourself, dear God, why didn't I buy myself one of these early warning systems the man told me about? You're going to wish you had. About 30 people were clustered around him now. And when that bloody discharge starts running from your nose and mouth, the man continued, and your muscles seize up so as you embarrass yourself in your pants, you'll regret not taking this simple precaution. Guaranteed. He held up a small, cheap cage in which a dispirited yellow bird clung to a wooden dowel. This here canary gives you precisely one hour of sure, safe, and certain early warning, he said, and it's a godsend at $50. Neary got out of his car and walked across the street to join the crowd around the bird peddler. People were starting to shove money at him, which his wife took as he handed out caged canaries. Can't afford a canary? 
he was asking in a high voice, his mouth working smoothly, easily as the words flow. Then, I got you a special on doves. They give you a 45-minute head start. Not as much as a canary, but then they don't cost 50 bucks, neither. $30 takes away a dove. Here he pushed towards the stacks of cages. Let me have two canaries, he said. Two's better than one, a dove's better than nothing, and in the bargain basement I got chickens. Twenty bucks a piece, and they give you a whole half hour of warning. Neary fished in his pocket for money while the other hand he reached across to take the two caged birds. Carrying them back to his car, he was about to get in. Roy! He whirled around. Roy! The woman's voice called again. He stared at the crowd, pushing aboard the rescue train. Surely the voice came from there, but... Roy! He uh, saw her then, struggling against the flow of people, trying to make her way out of the crowd toward him. Jillian. All the nightmarishness of the place seemed to focus down to just the two of them. They fought to close the gap between them, but swarms of people kept them apart. Soldiers yelled through the bullhorns. Sheep shoved past. Cars kept trying to move down the crowded main street. The bird peddler's spiel was a cry of anguish. The sun flooded the scene with painful intensity. Over here, Neary called. Jillian was in danger and didn't realize it. The crowd had started to shove hard in its anxiety about getting onto the train. Going against them, she had risked being shoved to the ground and trampled. Get off, he shouted. Jump off the ramp. He waded through the crowd now, shoving people aside. Jillian fought her way sideways, then half jumped, half fell from the ramp. Neary caught her. They held each other tightly as people streamed by on both sides. Children, cattle, people carrying bird cages, an old woman with a tortoiseshell cat, a boy with a transistor radio glued to his ear, a man carrying two infants, a woman with four pillowcases crammed with possessions. The noise was frightening. Jillian and Neary clung together, bodies pressed close. They were saying things they couldn't hear, babbling and laughing into each other's faces. Then Roy began to edge them sideways out of the crowd, through the lines of steers moving along the sidewalk and back to his car. Jillian slumped down on the front seat and covered her eyes with her hand. Neary got behind the wheel and started his car. Hold on to the canaries, he said as they moved off down the street. What the hell, I don't think there's a poison gas out there, do you? Roy, she moaned, I'm so happy it's you. Me too, he laughed. And your children? Your wife? This time, Neary was silent. He had driven out of Reliance by now, and part of a long line of eastbound cars, he pulled over to the side of the road at an intersection, blocked by a jeep and two National Guardsmen. No turns here, one of them called. Keep moving. Just taking a rest, Neary turned to Jillian. They left me, he said. Ronnie and the kids took off. I was getting too flaky for them. Jillian's mouth twisted sideways. Flaky? That's what the FBI man told me. I could see he didn't believe what I was telling him. Neary nodded. Listen, Jillian. We didn't both come out to Wyoming just to turn around and go back. But they have the roads blocked. There's a way. This is a big country. This is beer commercial country. She said nothing for a moment, then she took his hand and brought it to her cheek. I'm glad we've met again. Then Neary spotted what he was searching for all along, a stretch of countryside protected by barbed wire and not much else. The barbed wire had begun to rust in places. Neary backed up the vega for a short 
running start and he downshifted into a hill climbing gear for more torque. He rammed the gas pedal down to the floor and under the hood the engine roared. Rear wheels spouting Wyoming dust. The grill slammed head into the fence and boing, like a guitar string, the barbed wire snapped. So that's chapter 21 from the novelization and I think it better explains the uh, train station scene uh, as it was presented in the movie. Um, so, you know, we get a little bit more insight into the characters. We get a little bit better explanation of how they met. It's still kind of a coincidence, um, but uh, but it was a little better staged, <laughs> you know, than it was in the than it was in the movie, which is kind of a kind of a weird cut there. Um, Anyway, I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, they mentioned um, that was a, a point where they took time to mention, um, you know, uh, the wife and kids leaving, uh, leaving him. So um, all in all, uh, I think I'm, I'm going to look forward to uh, rereading the novelization because um, I'm sure it adds a, a bunch of, you know, details like that that you just can't see in the movie. So... Uh, anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that, and uh, thank you for tuning in to Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules. Uh, I'm your host, Douglas Arthur, as usual, and uh, join us next time for more fun and merriment, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. And speaking of not cheap, today's episode is brought to you by Wesley's Hot Cocoa for Cats. Won't you give your cat a steaming mug today? Just mix with milk and watch them purr. It's the perfect winter snack for any feline friend. That's Wesley's Hot Cocoa for Cats. Ask for it by name. Space Mules is copyright 2017 by Douglas Arthur for Doug Side Syndicate. All other content is copyrighted its respective holders and is used under the doctrine of fair use. You can contact the show by sending email to spacemules at yahoo.com or you can follow us on Twitter at Space Mules and head over to Facebook to check out the official Assault of the Two-Headed Space Mules fan page for all the latest news, shows, and celestial ephemera. And don't forget to check out cafepress.com slash spacemules for all your Space Mules swag. T-shirts, hats, coffee mugs, you name it, we have all the highest quality merchandise you can shake a Zuni doll at. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. All previous episodes are available to stream or download at spacemules.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Be sure to tune in next time when you'll hear my brother say... Hey, my accompanist, is Paul Schaefer. Come on, everyone in the room. Hey, did anybody, who was playing the music so loud this morning? Anybody? Did anybody hear some real loud music about 6 o'clock, Paul, did you? Yes, I did. Did it go something like... Da da da, da da. Yeah. How many of you are fooled? Come on, hands. I got everybody. <laughs> A first encounter, you. Next encounter, me. The third encounter.
close encounters. Theme, close encounters, theme. Thank you, good night everybody, go to your rooms. Get, try to get some sleep, it's nothing, whatever it is you can do. Happy honeymoon, everybody.